Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 914. On this week's show, David Lorela is joined by Hall of Fame baseball writer Jason Stark of The Athletic and the Starkville Podcast, and Tyler Kepner of The New York Times. The trio began by discussing how the media landscape has changed in the sport, both in the face of the coronavirus pandemic and also just naturally over the years. Nowadays, as evidenced by this very podcast, a baseball writer must be prepared to do more than simply write pieces to reach their audience. David, Jason, and Tyler also talk about what's going on in spring training and who are some of their favorite, most underrated, and most exciting players in the sport right now. I'm obsessed with Otani. <laughs> I, I admit it. Now, before last year, it's my favorite stat, boys. Shohei Otani had the same OPS for his career as Freddie Freeman and the same ERA plus as Garrett Cole. Think wow. about it. <laughs> now, last year didn't go so hot. Right. But I'm, I'm obsessed with that guy. After that, Dan Zamborski and Tony Wolf talk about Dan's breakout and bust picks for the upcoming season. Are J.P. Crawford and Luis Urias ready to produce in the majors? What does Z strikeout rate have to say about Dylan C's? And is Dan asking for trouble by believing in a certain Yankees backstop? You're brave for including Gary Sanchez and tempting Yankees Twitter to come down as hard on you for that as the, as they may have. Yankees Twitter with Gary Sanchez is a very complex relationship. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you regularly enjoy what we do at Fangraphs, from one of our podcasts to our daily articles to our roster resource depth charts to our statistics database, consider purchasing an ad-free subscription for yourself or for a friend. We are excited for another season of bringing you baseball analysis, and we couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guests on this segment, uh, that's guests as in plural, uh, are Tyler Kepner of the New York Times and Jason Stark of The Athletic, two of the best baseball writers in the country, I think is fair to say. I don't know if either of you gentlemen want to push back on that assertion too hard. <laughs> uh, compliments always accepted, David. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Hey, it is true. It is very true. We're going to talk about a variety of topics on this segment. Um, and I think we should start with the state of baseball coverage, which has obviously been altered quite a bit over the past year. And what it's going to look like going forward, I'm, I'm not sure that's easy to predict. You know, you know, what do you guys think? Well, I've been uh, I've spent a lot of time on this talking to Major League Baseball about this because I'm the point person for national baseball writers and access issues. And I don't think that anybody can totally predict it. Um, it's been a it's been a really strange year and a, especially a strange spring because I know Tyler could attest to this. Like we ha when we cover baseball, we have a rhythm to our lives. And part of the rhythm is. If you live in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, like us, if you could just freeze your butt off through the Super Bowl, then you get palm trees. Okay, so there's been none, none of that. Um, we're, we're trying to do this by Zoom and phone and and television. And like, that's not good. That's hard. Everything, everything is much harder to do this way. Um, it can be done. I think we're all proving it can be done. But the question we we face is, is it ever going back? Are we ever going to set foot in another clubhouse? I, I'm going to say yes, but I don't have the same certainty about that 
that I had even six months ago. Tyler, what about you? Yeah, me, me neither. I think the more the more time you spend doing one doing something one way, the better chance it is that that becomes the way. And I think you know having one season last year and now another season, at least the beginning of it on Zoom with no reporters in the clubhouse, players will get used to that. And teams will teams can always fall back on the abundance of caution, safety and, and health protocol thing. And that's kind of an argument that you can't push back against without looking really bad. So I don't know what the future holds for us. I, I feel like a lot of uh, people in MLB would love to have us in there. And even some players and coaches I, I've talked to have, have said that it's not the same uh, without us there. But that gets us into the, you know, all the bigger issues in baseball and, and which side gets what they want and um, where we fit in on that in terms of priorities. I think it's pretty low, but it is it is something that can be bargained. And, uh, you know, so I, it's hard to trust what's going to happen next. Yeah, well, I'll tell you the point that I've tried to make to people in baseball that I've spoken with. And you guys can totally relate to this because the three of us, we're not writing the same kinds of stories that a lot of people in our profession write. We have very different levels of interest and different types of plot lines and and, and trends that, and people who fascinate us. And what we do in those clubhouses cannot be replaced by Zoom or interview rooms or anything else. And that is build relationships. When we're in those clubhouses and we have a chance to talk to players one-on-one, -on -one, you make connections that change everything. And the, the point I've tried to make so many times to people in baseball is that's not just a one-way street. It's not just us, the writers, the media, who benefit. Players benefit, too. Uh, like, turn on your TV. Watch MLB Network. Think of the players who are sitting in front of the camera really enjoying life, you know, um, as a as a TV broadcaster after playing baseball. Sean Casey and Al Leiter and Harold Reynolds and Jim Tomey. You can go on and on and on and on. Right, what do those guys all have in common? They all built relationships with people like us. They all allowed their personalities to show through people like us. And because they did, it set themselves up for the rest of their lives. And I know the easy pushback is they don't need us anymore. They've got social media. They can, they can get their messages out. They can get their personalities out. That's true to a point. But I still think that we see things, we portray things, we write things, we present things in a different way than a would, they would ever think to present them. And so I, I think there's, there's so much mutual benefit in that access for everybody, for the sport, that we can play that card because it's, it's a real thing. And, and with access in mind, or maybe even without access in mind, what do our readers and listeners, and listeners, you just mentioned social media and TV podcasts are big, Starkville, I think everybody has heard of that podcast, are, <laughs> are growing in, in popularity. What type of content do people want? The larger audience, the people who do follow, you know, all three of us who go to Fangraphs, who go to ESPN, really to any large media entity. 
Well, part of me wonders how much, you know, the, the next generation is going to read, you know, read the kinds of profiles and columns and, and things that, that I've always done and that Jason's, is, is, that I grew up reading Jason and that Jason's done so well and got him in the, the Hall of Fame. But Jason also, you know, Jason showed how branching out into other kinds of media is very valuable too for, for the, you know, for the current consumer. I, I just, you know, I look at my son and I know that, you know, he's a smart kid, but he doesn't like, you know, he doesn't sit down and read a lot of articles about, about the, you know, occasionally, but a lot of it's just on the phone and, and, and look at these highlights and look at this, this opinion back and forth on, on this topic or this funny thing or whatever. And then maybe an article gets in there, but it's not like the, the main thrust, I think, as it, as it used to be. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the more diversified things you can you can do, I guess, uh, I guess the better. But I, I, I kind of just mainly focus on the writing side of it. <laughs> That's what I do best. <laughs> you, know, you know, I'm more I am actually more upbeat about that than you are. I think, Tyler, I'm really heartened by what's happened at The Athletic in just the time I've been there, which is closing in now on three years. We've got more than a million subscribers and they read this stuff. You know, it's clear that they read it, um, and I'm excited about that. Uh, I subscribe to Fangraphs, and it's well worth it's well worth every penny. I subscribe to the New York Times in great part because I get to read Tyler Kepner mm-hmm. on baseball, and I still think there's an audience for all kinds of writing about baseball, in particular sports in general. But I also think that we need to tell stories now in all sorts of different ways. I, I think Tyler and I are in, have a lot in common in that we both grew up wanting to be sports writers. We wanted to write. And when I hear from kids now, like I heard from Tyler Kepner back in the day, I, I always tell them like, it's just, it's just not enough now to think you're going to grow up and type. You've got, you've got to learn to look into a camera. You've got to learn to speak into a mic. You've got to learn how to use Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook. You've got to learn about what podcasting really is. Like all of these things are important ways to connect with our audience and to tell them the stories that they want to hear in the way that they want to hear them, because maybe they're not going to read it, but you can still tell them about it. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, the success of the athletic is it's very encouraging. You know, I think for our business, it's 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 one stop for a lot of great writing for any sport. So, I, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of it. And um, you know, I, I just uh, you know, getting back to one point that you were making earlier, Jason. Obviously, the you know, you taught you brought up the players benefiting from the relationships that we can build with them. And 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 I'll just give you one example of of the way that a writer can can use those relationships. Uh, the other the other day, I was I was writing a story about Tony Larusa. And I noticed that two of his coaches were guys who I covered, bench guys in my years as a beat writer. But I covered Joe McEwing on the Mets for right. a couple of years. And I covered Shelly Duncan for a few years on the Yankees. You know, neither of them were, were everyday starting all-stars. But, you know, you get you get to know all the guys on the team when you're in the clubhouse every day, just casual conversations. So being able to, you know, reach out to them, not through anybody else, but just, you know, text Shelly Duncan directly and say, hey, let's talk about this. You know, I, I was able to get some some insights into that story, I think, that that you wouldn't that I wouldn't probably get. I wouldn't think to go to, the, to certain voices unless I you know, knew them from from way back. And so something from 2001 can inform your story from 2020. 
just because those relationships that you build and that's the sort of thing that you lose if you're not in the clubhouse just those just those random days with nothing to do but you know (laughs) you know talk to a big leaguer and then learn something and pick something up and and then that's how stories start to form so it's you know it's an art it's not an art but it's a it's it's definitely a big part of uh, what makes baseball writing fun and what makes it good for the readers so true. No, for sure. And on the subject of stories and players, are Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis future Hall of Famers, or should we really pump, the, <laughs> or should we pump the brakes a, a bit on that on that hype? All right. Well, you're asking that question of a guy who just wrote a column comparing Juan Soto to Ted Williams. <laughs> so my brakes are apparently out of order. <laughs> and I, uh, I like I took a lot of flack from people who clearly did not read one word of that piece. <laughs> but I just wanted to make the point that the beginning of Juan Soto's career really mirrors one player in history more closely than anyone else, and that player is Ted Williams. I'm not I'm not saying he's going to be a war hero or a fishing hall of famer or any of that. <laughs> but one of the things I learned by doing the research that I did is players who are as great at baseball as Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis Jr. at this age almost always go on to not just be great, but be historically great. And I, I, I don't like, I think we should learn from that stuff can happen. It obviously can happen. I don't know how healthy they're going to be or what's going to, what's going to lie ahead for either of them. But they have laid a foundation that could easily lead them to the Hall of Fame. I don't see any problem in saying that. I, like, I'm really not afraid to compare Juan Soto to Ted Williams. I called Tatis the Patrick Mahomes of baseball. You know, like it's. <laughs> I think it's okay to say this stuff. Patrick Mahomes isn't Tom Brady either, but he's off to one of those starts where you you can see now what is possible. That's all we're saying. You know, championships aside, Miguel Cabrera and Albert Pujols are Tom Brady. When you talk about greatness of career, they're probably near the end, it looks like. You know, what do their legacies mean? Well, for me, obviously, you you start off with the fact they're Hall of Famers, no doubt about it. And once you're in the Hall of Fame, you got nothing to apologize for. You're the best of the best. But I think Albert's, the fact, the dividing line in Albert's career is so stark to me that I can't ignore it. I, I can't ignore the fact that when he changed teams, he abruptly switched from one of the greatest hitters of all time to a guy who's had a decade as a little bit a, a little bit better than league average one-dimensional guy. I mean, I hate to say it, but if Albert Pujols, if, if, it, if an owner hadn't decided to give Albert Pujols a 10-year contract for $240 million, I don't know how much value he would bring anymore. I don't know how much, what he would be still be doing. So I obviously first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't want to take that away from him. But this is a guy who hit 328 for St. Louis for 11 years. And now his average is under 300 because he's hit 257 with the Angels. It doesn't get on base. He's on, on base 100 points less. He just has never been the same dynamic player. And it's been a decade. This hasn't been like a, 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 a slow bell curve of a thing. It's not a bell curve. This is like the whole second half is a very steep decline. So I don't want to disrespect him, and I don't think it's any disrespect to say that a guy's first ballot Hall of Famer, but that second half of that Pujols career, it just is not greatness. And we saw greatness for 11 years. We haven't seen it for the last nine. 
The final numbers are going to be amazing. 600 plus home runs, the, all of it, two championships, the MVPs, 3,000 hits. But that cliff that he fell off of after 2011 is part of his story, too. Yeah. What do you think, Jason? Do you think that he has in any way tarnished his career by sticking around as long as he has? Well, see, I like to not look at players that way. I think we always fall into that trap where we get fixated on what guys are at the end of their careers, which is never what they are at the beginnings of their careers or the peak of their careers. And the peak of both those guys is incredible. But I I have to admit, I don't know, did you did either of you two see the series of Bill James tweets about Albert in the last week or so? He made an observation that I can't stop thinking about. Albert, at one point, was 180 hits above 300, right? <laughs> and that, and now he is below 300, barely, but he is. And according to Bill James, no other hitter was even half that far above 300 and finished with an average in the twos. Mickey Mantle is the most ever, 57 hits above 300. Albert was 180 hits above 300. That is incredible. But like, I'm trying not to forget what both of these guys have been in their totality. You know, I've looked, I looked at this earlier this winter. You know how many right-handed hitters in history have... 2,800 hits, 450 homers, and a 900 OPS. There are only six. There are two of them. You want to even take a guess at the other four? It's a good trivia question for you. That isn't Manny Ramirez, Jimmy Fox. Are either of those correct? Manny did not come up because I don't think he got to 2,800 hits, right? What were the the 2,800 hits? 450 homers, 900 OPS. So I think Manny, if I lowered the bar a little bit on hits. Right-handed hitter. Manny was 2,500 hits. That's why he's oh. not on there. Yeah, that's uh, that's tough. Hey, Aaron, right? Aaron is one, right? Of course. Mays. 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 Aaron and Mays are two. And how many are we talking? There's two more. I'm guessing Frank Thomas didn't quite get the hits. Didn't. didn't A-Rod. Play. A-Rod's one. And then one of the most underrated hitters who ever lived, underrated players who ever lived, Frank Robinson. Robinson. Ah, so that's a, uh, a pretty good group, right? <laughs> yeah. On the subject of underrated players, who is the most underrated player in the game right now? All right. Tyler and I were, were doing on this because I, I told him I wanted to take Trey Turner. And then I remembered he just wrote an awesome piece <laughs> <laughs> about how underrated Trey Turner is. <laughs> but but I, let me make my, I'll make a quick case for Trey Turner anyway. Uh, I had a 157 OPS plus last year while playing shortstop. Here are all the shortstops in the live ball era who have ever done that. A-Rod, Ripken, Robin Yount, Archie Vaughn, Lou Boudreaux, and of course, Rico Petroselli one year. But yeah. the only others who did it with double-digit steals were A-Rod and Robin Yount. And Trey Turner did that in a 60-game season. He's special. He really is. And it's tempting to th- what I wrote about was it's it's tempting to think of what he could do if he really just let it fly on the bases. Even his hitting right. coach, uh, Kevin Long, was was talking about that, how, how he'd sort of part of him would just love to see Turner just go for it for a year and just see how high he could reach. Um, because it's been I mean, in the 80s, we had 20 seasons of 75 stolen bases. It was fairly common. And we haven't had any seasons of 75 steals since 2007. 
Jose Reyes. And I think before him, it was Kenny Lofton in 96. So that number 75 is pretty much out of commission now. But I yeah. think when you look at Trey Turner, how, how fast he is and how good he is, how often he's on base, he could do it. But he doesn't. He doesn't want to. He and he doesn't think that it's it's the right thing to do because of the you know how much it would take out of his body, and how he's you know he's much more than that. I mean he, he he's he, they count on him as a you know for some pop. I mean he he had a 588 slugging percentage last year, and he hit, you know and he hit uh, 335. So you know you could bundle these stats to make Trey Turner kind of a singular guy like in the game right now. Like let's say he hits. This is what Kevin Long put to me. He said. He said, let's say he hits 330 with 75 stolen bases. That doesn't seem that outrageous with his speed, fastest everyday player in baseball, who hit 335 last year. It's not outrageous. You know, nobody's hit 330 with 75 steals since Ty Cobb in 1915. <laughs> Was that a so long like, time ago? Yeah, yeah. So, like, we're talking about a guy who probably, if he wanted to, could do that. That's pretty amazing. But so it much is. focus is on the big free agents, understandably, who play shortstop. And he's always sort of been overshadowed a little bit on his own team by a guy we've already talked about here in this podcast, Juan Soto, or before that, Anthony Rendon and Bryce Harper and the great pitchers they have there. So he's been surrounded by stars, but he himself is an absolute superstar. Yeah, I, one of Ty Cobb's former teammates, I think, is one of the most underrated players in history is, is Harry Heilman. A lot of listeners probably are wondering who the hell was Harry Heilman? <laughs> no, Hall of Fame. Yeah, he was. <laughs> it is possible to be an underrated Hall of Famer. Oh yeah, definitely. I think Jose Ramirez may be the most underrated player in the game, and he has been an All Star who's got MVP votes. But at the same time, people don't talk about him. David, you know who I was thinking of? Uh, Jose Abreu. <laughs> and then I thought, wait, this is stupid. He's been an MVP and a Rookie of the Year, but we <laughs> never talk about him. I know if you talk to the White Sox people, they bend your ear about this all the time. They, they've, I've heard them actually compare him in his own way to Albert Pujols, not because he's going to hit 600 homers, but because from day one, when that guy showed up, he has done nothing but produce. Nothing. Year in, year out. I get it. Plus, He's the biggest presence on their whole club. You know, he's he really is. He's, he's more than just a guy who shows up and hits, and we never talk about him ever. It took Larusa about a week to to see the similarities between him and uh, prime age Pujols right. with the Cardinals. I mean, he has that presence, and he's had it from the day, like you said, from the day he got there. I remember doing something on him in his rookie year, and he reminded me very much of Hideki Matsui when he came to the Yankees. When I was covering the Yankees, because Matsui came over, yes, as a rookie. But as a, a, a professional, a no-nonsense pro who who knew he belonged, and just had, like you say, a presence about him, like he's been here his whole career. He was just ready, and no drama, just does the job, day in, day out, every year. And that's why I was so glad last year that not just Abreu, but Freddie Freeman was the MVP. You know, rarely does a guy over thirty win the MVP anymore. It hadn't happened, I don't think, since two thousand seven. And last year, maybe because it was a shortened season, but we had two guys who were over 30 who've been around, <laughs> steady producers, who did it. I look at guys like, uh, you know, I'm not sure their ages exactly offhand, but Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, sort of in that class, too, of guys who just do it year in, year out, but they've never won an MVP. You've never seen them in the World Series, but they're always steady, steadily great. And so it was, it was really cool to see Abreu, especially, and also Freeman get that recognition last year because they've been underrated for a long time. 
Right. And a guy who is, of course, not underrated and realistically could be the MVP every year is Mike Trout. Are he and Shohei Otani the top must-watch pair of teammates in the game? Or is there any other duo that's even close? Well, I think for what Otani and Trout are, if you're talking duos, there's pro- there's no one like them because there's no one like Otani to, who does it on, on both sides. So I think that probably has to be number one because it's so different. You get the best player in baseball, can't take your eyes off Mike Trout whenever he's on the field, and then you have a, a player who is completely uh, one of a kind in a dominant starting pitcher and a guy who seems to be hitting the ball over the center field batter's eye in Tempe every other day. So, um, yeah, I'd say that I'd say that's pretty fair comparison, although there are a lot of good duos we could go on with. But I, I, I would say that's a good one, um, that those two guys would be tops. Yeah, it's, I'm obsessed with Otani. <laughs> I, I admit it. Now, before last year, it's my favorite stat, boys. Shohei Otani had the same OPS for his career as Freddie Freeman and the same ERA plus as Garrett Cole. Think wow. <laughs> now, last year didn't go so hot. Right. But I'm, I'm obsessed with that guy. But I'll, get, I'll give you a pair that this could happen. How about Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert? Some tools there, right? Isn't that crazy? Because I, I, I had some White Sox, but but not those two White Sox. <laughs> I, had, I had Tim Anderson and Makata. Yeah. And you could also throw Abreu in there. And I mean, like, these are guys. Anderson is an exciting player with style, and he, he backs it up by hitting 330 every year and running the bases well and, and playing with you. Makata does it all, switch hitter. I mean, that whole team is just, uh, you know, must watch up and down. Right. And I think uh, Mookie Betts and Trevor Bauer may. <laughs> Maybe interesting. I, I didn't know you were counting pitchers in this. Mookie and all, there's a lot of combinations there. Mookie and Bellinger, right? Yeah. Uh, the Padres, lots of combinations. Tatis Machado and Manny's into it, right? Tatis and Darvish, if we're talking pitchers. Darvish and Tatis. Oh, God, that's yeah. Good, uh... That's a good show. <laughs> you know, a hey, good I'll, show. Gi- I'll, give you, I'll give you one, too. Bo Bichette and George Springer. Vladdy. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Vladdy's having an amazing spring. What do you think? That's great. Much less of Vladdy, right? Forty-two pounds less. Like they, uh, yeah, incredible. That'll be interesting to see how he how he uh, changes because of that. No, for sure. Let's. Uh, we have time for just maybe a few more things, but let's change uh, direction slightly and talk about batting average, which nobody cares about, but I still think it's kind of. <laughs> I still think it's kind of fun in some ways. Who are the best candidates to win a batting title this year? but non-star category. In other words, you know, Trout, Tatis, Soto, guys like that aren't eligible for this, nor like a Freeman or even a DJ LeMayu. Hmm. Wow. Um, did you put this on your list? I don't remember this question. Um, of course not. I, I can't make everything easy on you guys. <laughs> You're prominent sports writers. Uh, right. I'm trying to think of some down-ballot Rockies guy who... Uh, we had. Jose Iglesias? I don't <laughs> what did he hit last year? Hey, yeah, like 370, right? Like uh, Yeah. I'll give you a guy, Alec Bohm. Like that. Yeah. You know, he's like he's a guy who got to the big leagues and has done nothing but hit and have great at bats, and he's not a launch angle kind of guy. And because of that, he's got a chance to hit for a really high average. Now I, I mean it's awfully it's awfully soon into his career to be saying, well, he's going to win a batting title or whatever. But he did hit 330-something or other last year, so I, he's a guy to watch. Sure. I'll take that, man. Alex Verdugo. How about that? 
he is a candidate. What about Luis Arise, the infielder for the Twins? Yeah, I think well, he, I think he's a three thirty something hitter, about five hundred PAs into his career. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little scarred because uh, Eno Saris and I wrote a crazy piece last year where we made outrageous predictions of stuff that could happen in a sixty game season, and I think we predicted he could hit four hundred, and that didn't work out that well. <laughs> is he gonna? Is he? He'll be one of those guys who just plays. All over the place, right? Because I mean, they have Polanco at second. They, they they've got uh, Simmons at short and Donaldson at third. Yeah, he has to. third, I think. So he's. I don't know if he gets all the at bats, but maybe that's good if you're talking about batting title. You know, you don't have the you get just over 500 plate appearances. You don't have that extra. That kind right. Of to drag you down. What about David Fletcher? Yeah. Or Adam Frazier. I think Adam Frazier, as we speak on Wednesday afternoon, I think he's 12 for 18 this spring. That'll work. Wow. How about Nick Madrigal on the on the uh, on the White Sox? I mean, there's another guy like Fletcher who puts the bat on the ball. Yeah. If you put the bat on the ball as much as as Fletcher or Madrigal, and you know you get a good Babbitt here or something, you know you could uh, you could sneak in there with a the batting title. Good Babbitt helps. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, let's go from from players to teams. Who are this year's dark horse teams? I know you're both Philadelphia guys, so I'm kind of expecting to hear a Phillies answer from at least one of you. All right, I'll like I'll I'll make a case for the Phillies. I I'm not predicting the Phillies to win anything, but uh, I'm just intrigued by the perception of the Phillies as being just a very run of the mill team, very mediocre team. And like, let me just look at last year. Okay, the Phillies played 60 games last year. They held the lead, if I remember off the top of my head, in 40. Nine of them. Good teams, when they take a lead, what happens, boys? They find a way to win. The Phillies, when they took a lead, then they brought in their bullpen, which found many ways to lose. (laughs) And so because their bullpen was historically horrendous, they wound up not even having a winning record and not making the playoffs. And so I actually wrote something a few weeks ago that was just kind of a what if. What if the Phillies had had just a normal bullpen last year? The only team in the National League that held a lead at some point in more games than they did last year was the Dodgers. One team went on to win the World Series. The other team went on to miss the playoffs because their bullpen was so bad. I think Dave Dombrowski's actually done a real good job of addressing bullpen velocity and depth this year. I think they won't be elite, but I think they'll be at least normal. And I don't know what that means exactly, but again, I just want you to think about the perception of that team. If they win the percentage of games that normal teams win last year, they're a playoff team. They probably have the second or third highest winning percentage in the league, if not the sport. And we would look at them completely different right now. That The bullpen undid all the good stuff that happened. Yeah, can we expect that uh, Dave Dombrowski's Babbitt on relief pitcher acquisitions <laughs> is, is going to improve? <laughs> um, Those Tigers teams, man, they were one closer away and the closers kept getting hurt or underperforming. Yeah, Dave still has nightmares about that series against the Red Sox. <laughs> but but yeah. I, and then the I, next year I, might have been even worse when he when he had oh all God. those aces. He had four Cy Young winners, and they lost in three games. Two games started by Bud Norris, Wei Yin Chin, and Chris Tillman. Oh How about my that? God! I know. Well, <laughs> right. I don't know. I just 
because I live in Philadelphia, a lot of Phillies games show up on my TV. And Jose Alvarado has been incredible this spring. Uh, back to what he was when he first came up. Archie Bradley, Brandon Kinsler, Tony Watson. Like, boys, I think these are good additions. I, I do. Um, but stuff always happens. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I want to throw I want to throw something at Jason to close here in a minute. But first, Tyler, you need to give give us a, a good dark horse team. Well, it's it's hard, it's maybe hard to call a playoff team a dark horse, but we had so many of them last year. I'm going to stay in that NL East and, and give you the Miami Marlins, just because you know I think on the surface it, it didn't seem like the Marlins did a whole lot in the off season. They did only add one position player really, and Adam Duvall, but they somehow added five really quality relievers for about five and a half, six million bucks total for this year. And that's Anthony Bass, Adam Simber, John Curtis, Russ Detweiler, Dylan Floro. Now those are not kind of guys who you look at and say, oh, these are the guys who are going to win the pennant, but you put them all together. And last year they had a 289 collective ERA and you go, you put them together with some of the holdovers they had from last year. And the Marlins actually have a re- potential for a really, really good bullpen and they're going to need it because those starting pitchers are so talented but so inexperienced that I think the challenge for them is going to be getting through the 162-game season with the same five guys. And Magnus says they are not going to shut down anybody. They're not going to do a, a Strasburg situation. So they're going to need those those relievers. And I think Kim Mang and the, and the group there did a nice job building on that strength last year. Their lineup is, is, is sneaky solid. It doesn't have like anywhere close to the star power of the other four teams in that division. But I think the Marlins just get obscured because there is so much star power in the NL East and because every team has a payroll that's more than double theirs. So it's, 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 I'm not, again, I'm not predicting, I don't even know if I'll predict them for for third or second or whatever, but I'm just saying I can't count them out the way I think a lot of people are because there's a lot to like there. Good arms, but I like, I don't know what to make of their whole season last year. They couldn't, get through the first weekend of the season without that COVID outbreak. Then they were off for a week and a half, came back with, I think there were 17 players who weren't on their team the last time they played a game. They promptly rip off six games in a row. And other than that, they had a losing record for this season. So what was that? What do you make of that? What can anybody make of last year? Yeah, exactly. I was just glad last year that, that the honestly, with, with such a short season, with all those extra playoff teams, that it did end up coming down to the uh, the teams with the best records. Because if it had been, you know, a, a team with a losing record or something, I think it would have cheapened the whole thing. But because it was the Dodgers and the Rays, clearly the two best teams in that regular season, I think that helped sort of historically to kind of validate the 60-game season. Yeah, a player I think that one of us could have mentioned earlier for underrated is Brian Anderson. If, yeah. he, if he played yeah. in a, a – I mean, Miami is a large market, but they're not looked at as a large market for who knows what reason. Very, very good baseball player. Nobody talks about Brian Anderson. I talked to him today, so I, you can't put me in that category. <laughs> <laughs> hey, are, the, are the Angels underrated? I think they are. I, if I remember, the Zips projection for them was good. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 85 wins, right? Don't they always get high projections, though, because Trout and Rendon are so good? Like That's true. But yeah, yeah. But think how many Iglesias they required this winter. <laughs> yeah, full disclosure: Jose Iglesias is probably my favorite player in baseball, and he has been for several years. Really, he is, he is just so fun to watch. 
He's not even the best Iglesias on that team, is he? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he is the most fun Iglesias to watch. No, he on he that is team. a lot of fun. He really is. <laughs> he is. We've been talking for quite a long time. I want to close here, Jason. Strange but true. You do strange but true better than any sports writer in the world. So let's go. Give me a few good ones. What a niche, huh? How did this happen? Hey, some, some, everybody needs one. Yeah. You know, this has been a, a, one of those springs where as somebody who's always collecting the, the wackiest and weirdest injuries of the year, it's quite the treasure trove. Do you want my top three? <laughs> go for it. Do you want to do them in reverse order? Okay. Like third, all right. Third prize. John Duplantier, is that the right pronunciation for Jean Duplantier? He's a pitcher for the Diamondbacks. Cut his finger trying to put his razor together. That's a mm, high degree tricky. of difficulty. We have all done that. <laughs> yeah, but... Not me. I got a beard now, so... It probably wasn't national news. Right. <laughs> so, okay. Second prize, Byron Buxton cracked his tooth eating steak and needed a root canal. First prize, Brendan McKay of the Rays had an unfortunate encounter with a dog toy. You a dog toy? You don't, you, yeah, you don't get to throw that phrase dog toy out there in too many baseball conversations. But Brendan McKay was trying to cut a tag off the dog toy with a knife and sliced up his finger. And that didn't work out that well for the finger or the toy. So. I was going to say, it would, it would have to involve a knife because those dog toys, you don't make a dog toy to be dangerous because you know all a dog is going to do is just, just rip it apart with his teeth. So yeah. it must have been in the unwra un unwrapping of that dog toy. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, it, I mean, the, Mark Topkin wrote a whole fabulous story about this, but, you know, the dog was, was dog found the dog toy before it had been presented to the dog. Dog tried to open the plastic wrapping on the dog toy himself or herself and that was not successful so in order to finish the job Rendon McKay reached for his knife and the rest is history are you well, sure it was a knife or was he maybe using a razor you know you never know these things razors are dangerous <laughs> <laughs> okay. you know like as somebody who's assembled the greatest injuries in history going back to the, the Cal Ripken streak I'm always suspicious of whether what we're told is what actually happened but here's my position on this boys I don't care <laughs> this is like just don't be like john smoltz spend the rest of your life telling people i was not ironing my own shirt while i was wearing it i wasn't that's not true right but, hey the uh, the myth is is better than the truth <laughs> it really is and that is a perfect way to end end this podcast and once again i am david lorelaw that was tyler kepner and jason stark uh gentlemen thank you very much for uh coming on to fangraphs audio a pleasure thanks for having us on there david thanks for having us david Welcome to the portion of the Fangraphs audio that we call the Dan Zaborski Untitled Baseball Segment. Baseball-related segment, because Dan Zaborski is hard to stay on topic sometimes. Uh, today we're talking about booms and busts, and I'm joined by Tony Wolf, also a Fangraphs writer. And hopefully Tony is mad at a few of my picks, but, but we'll find that out in a minute. Uh, I think first we'll start with, like, the happy end, the breakout candidates. Because, you know, the world's getting better slowly so let's be a little cheerful and get off to a friendly start how are you doing today tony 
I'm doing very well, and uh, I, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed revisiting your booms and breakouts paces here as we prepare for this. I get the impression reading these that these are a, an anxious exercise for you, and the because of their predictive uh, nature. Yeah, what happens is projections generally are fairly conservative. They don't usually project, you know, huge breakouts or monster busts because those aren't really, you know, the average result. I kind of go back to Jose Bautista's breakout that if you projected Jose Bautista's breakout that season that he just suddenly became, you know, one of the most feared sluggers in baseball. The question is, was that actually a good projection if you projected that as a mean? Because that should be like, you know, an 80th or a 90th or a 95th percentile projection, because the thing about calibration and projections is that you're supposed to be wrong to a particular degree, which is one of the depressing things about projections in a way. Uh, but that's that's kind of the, the multi-layered challenge that we have to face. Uh, so with breakouts, I mean, I th- these are all things that are not, you know, super likely to happen, but they're players that I feel good about for some reason. And I try to, some of it is, you know, players that are projected to have, you know, what looks like a breakout season or players I think can beat their projections or just someone in there who has some aspect of their game that just fascinates me. And that those are the players I like the best, the ones that interest me and there's something neat there to look at. Uh, and so I, I, I tend to you know take a look at those guys. Now, one of the things about these articles is that a lot of breakouts and busts won't happen. And then everyone gets mad at me later. Uh, which I guess is kind of the fun of it. I don't know what that says about me, but I, I think we'll start with we'll we'll start. You want to start with pitchers or hitters for the breakouts? What do you like better? I like the uh, the the hitter side. I, I think I had I had more thoughts on that. You know, obviously uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and uh, Alex Karloff were were at the top of the page, and they had you know they're they are or were very well regarded prospects. So that their placement on a on a breakout list like this going into twenty twenty one makes a lot of sense. I I was interested in seeing some of the I was interested to see some of the uh, more post prospecty guys like uh jp crawford and uh and, and even gary sanchez you know J- jp has not really performed yet at the, at the major league level he hasn't turned in a league average season yet he over his past two years his his exit velocities have been really low he hasn't had much of a of a career to this point despite being a top prospect and yet if you look at his uh zips projections in this in this article, his 90th percentile projection has him up around three and a half war, which, you know, 90th percentile is on the on the rarer side of things. But that's more war than Gary Sanchez's 90th percentile has. It puts him above even Alex Kirilov's 90th percentile projection. What what makes Zips still such a fan of uh, of J.P. Crawford? Well, one of the things about Crawford is that he did have an excellent minor league record. And obviously it wasn't, you know, the record of of, of players named Wander or a certain player named Wander. Uh, but he, he, he hit very well at, at levels that he, you know, was young for. Uh, uh, he, he was 20 years old and he had a 350 on base percentage in double A ball for a shortstop. And that that that's a good thing. I mean, no, he was never going to hit for much power uh, except for that one weird year he hit like. 15 for the iron pigs or whatever they were called then but he had an excellent minor league history and you know his major league record is still kind of short and one of the things that i what makes me i I just wonder kind of how the phillies used him because the first thing they did when they brought him up to the majors was actually stick him at third base 
which she had never actually really played professionally before. And I, I tend to dislike when teams do that kind of thing because it's like, how are you going to... You know, this guy's already trying to adjust to the majors. So now you're giving him a new position to play to? I mean, that's that's like a double challenge. So I'm not really sure if there's any statistical backup for that theory uh, because it's kind of hard to figure out kind of an objective list of screwed over by team candidates. Uh, but it, it, it does interest me. And he... He won a gold glove at shortstop deservedly in 2020, so it's not like he couldn't play the position. Yeah, I found that I, I've watching uh, watching the Reds over the past couple of years. I think Nick Senzel has been a, a sort of similar example of somebody who had had really strong offensive minor league numbers, but hasn't really reached that point in the majors yet, and uh, could very well attribute that to the fact that as soon as he got to the majors, they had a career third baseman start playing center field all of a sudden. Yeah, that, that the Phillies like to roll that way. Now, if I look on the on the breakout list, the one that I'm wondering how about other people feel is Luis Arias. I had him on my breakout pick last year. If he was in the majors more established like the year before, I probably would have put him on the list that year. Am I crazy about still liking him? I, I, I feel like I've reached a point that I'm kind of the last person who still likes Arias. But I'm just I just I'm wondering how you feel about him. Yeah, I, I I'm probably down on Urias as well. I think I think the Padres trading him was sort of indicative about where they were beginning to feel about him. Obviously, that had so that has a lot to do with the way that the Padres roster construction was and just how many infielders, how many really good infielders they were getting ready to have at the big league level. But uh, you know, prospects who who get traded to other teams early in their careers that they tend to perform worse than prospects who stick around with the teams that develop them. Orias has not done, hasn't showed much of anything in the majors yet. You know, he, he doesn't really hit the ball that hard. The good thing that he still does, I think, is he, he limits his strikeouts. He was over 26% in, in 2020 with, with Milwaukee. But before that, he he was keeping his contact and, and plate discipline rates and in, in check pretty well. And you know, if the, his minor league track record was was just so strong that you you do kind of you you do think that he will eventually get to a point where he is he's hitting like an above average player in the big leagues. And he's of course uh, I. I think he's pretty well regarded defensively right so i think there's there's still something there milwaukee is open enough right now with with the opportunities they're able to give out that that i think he'll have he'll have a pretty good opportunity to you know sink or swim in the big leagues i i kind of wonder if maybe it's helpful to him that trent grisham was so good with the padres in 2020 because on some level maybe it makes the brewers like a little more determined to show they got value in in, in that trade I don't know if that's actually a factor, but I, I, I do wonder about that. Uh, now, one question I have for you. I picked Vladimir Guerrero Jr. As a, bra- as a breakout candidate. Is that kind of, am I a big fat coward for picking Vlad at this point? Is it like, is that like me saying, you know, what's underrated? Tacos. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't think that, that you're a coward because I, he has been underwhelming compared to his you know his expectations in his first couple of seasons it's almost it's almost his his place on a list like this is almost obligatory where you you're not going to feel you know super like a genius putting him there but he he does belong there it's almost like putting 
putting Jacob deGrom on a list of Cy Young candidates for the National League at this point. Like you're no one, no one is, you know, reaching super, super deep within themselves to, to pull out a name like that, but he has to be there. You know, he's, he, uh, I, I liked what you said in the breakouts piece where, you know, if, if he were a, just a, a 21 year old who was named uh, Bob Smith instead of, literally Vladimir Guerrero uh and he didn't have the the super prospect future face of baseball billing getting to the big leagues he would be on a lot of he would be a a favorite a, a sleeper pick uh maybe of a lot of people going into this season because of the fact that he has put in two qualified seasons of above average offense in the majors already before he's even turned 22 years old so yeah I I I do think that he belongs on a list like this and you know if if nothing else uh, then a an excuse to look at his uh, zips projections for uh the his age 22 season his 90th percentile outcome is that of almost a five-win player and given how much he's limited by his defense and how li- how little value he's adding there on the bases is is a really impressive thing for a 22-year-old. So I guess I guess you could say I'm a big fat man of average bravery then. Not particularly brave, but not particularly cowardly. I guess I guess I guess I'll take that. Well, you're you're brave for including Gary Sanchez and tempting Yankees Twitter to come down as hard on you for that as the as they may have. Yankees Twitter with Gary Sanchez is a very complex relationship because you have the people that get angry at him when he has an injury and just, you know, how dare he almost. It's a, it's kind of a weird thing. And then of course you have the people who get very very angry defending him. And you know, I I haven't gotten Yankees fans mad at me in a while uh, because I keep projecting them to be a good team. And I'm from Baltimore, so that kind of hurts a little bit <laughs> because, I mean, they used to put the root against the Yankees. And, and I mean, they'd come to Camden Yards and they'd drown out the Orioles' tepid cheers. Uh, so that was that was always a, a thing. So I, I, I'm, I, I hope a few of them. I haven't gotten any good, nasty comments about that, which has disappointed me a little bit. So if you made this list... Do you have anyone that you would add to this list of, of the breakout hitters? I think if if I had were putting together a list like this, it's weird because breakouts can mean anything from a, a prospect who's really young who is about to get his you know first extended run at big league action. Somebody like uh, Alex Kirilov, or it could be somebody who's been around a while showed some heights early in their career and hasn't lived up to them in a while. A guy that I've written about recently is Jason Hayward. He hit really, really well last year, as well as he has basically in a year since his his rookie season. And what was so interesting to me about the way he performed last year was the fact that he was all of a sudden walking, you know, over 15% of the time. And he was, uh, he had a little bit more strikeouts, but he, he was hitting for a lot more power again, you know, in, in the 190 ISO range. And th- those are all things that he he wasn't really doing in the years since his rookie season. He's had good seasons over the course of his career since he was a rookie, but uh, his Cubs tenure has just been so- sort of 
complex to look at because of the the big contract that he signed. He was expected to play like a star, and he's only been a one to two win player over the course of his first four seasons there. And then all of a sudden last year, he was a two win player in only about fifty games. So uh, I, I'm I'm really interested to see if he is going to be able to keep up those plate discipline numbers if he's able to stay pretty patient and keep that power up a little bit because the Cubs, of course, they've already lost Kyle Schwarber this winter and may stand to lose Chris Bryant, uh, Javier Baez, and Anthony Rizzo, depending on what they do with those contracts later this season. So Jason Hayward playing like a star would be good for them sort of ushering in that next that next era of you know whatever that next good Cubs team looks like. My personal theory is that the nickname was too aggressive when he came up uh, because <laughs> calling a kid, calling a 20 year old, the J. Hay kid first, it's a, it's a cringy pun in a way, the J. Hay kid. And you're giving someone, you know, you're giving them a Willie Mays based nickname. And there's not a lot of players I'd give a Willie Mays based nickname. I think you have to kind of work up to the a Mays related nickname. You should start by like being compared to like, Mike Devereaux or something, and then <laughs> and then you kind of earn your way up to Mays. Like you get a new nickname every year, like a, like a promotion at work. It's 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 always interesting the guys who have these expectations, and then they're just players. I'm, it's it's a very interesting genre of of, of baseball dude. Uh, I think of Greg Jeffries. So much was thought of Greg Jeffries. He had that huge like major league debut. He had that big minor league season. I forget if it was like Tidewater or St. Lucie or wherever, and then. He just became a guy, and then everyone thought he was the worst player ever, but he was just a guy. He was fine, but he wasn't, you know, a superstar. Now, I mean, let's move on to the pictures. Uh, let's see. I guess my biggest cop out this year was was Joe Musgrove. Is Was it too late to add Joe, Joe Musgrove to a breakout list? Maybe. I was I was surprised to see him, but again, I think with, with Musgrove, you only, you've only seen this really good version of him for for eight starts you know the way his you know he, he had he's already had this big surge in strikeout percentage and this really big step forward that you know a lot of a lot of breakout picks only sort of hint at he's already he's already done done all of that but he did it in just an eight start stretch for a last place team and now he's going to be in the middle of a rotation for a world series contender so from that respect i i like seeing musgrove there and also uh john means probably fits into that category he's obviously still on he's still going to be playing for for a last place team but he was sort of similar in that he showed that he showed a, a really serious step forward in in velocity he was already a, a three-win player in 2019 so he's he's already shown that he can be a, a really good mid, mid-rotation starter but I think you know just in terms of you know similar with with Guerrero I think we we haven't seen they're they're both pitchers that I don't I think there's a good argument to me to me that we haven't seen anything close to what their peak could look like over the course of a full season and uh, so I think I think because of that they fit just fine on a list like this. I'm curious. I I noticed in the pitcher in the pitching 
side, you highlighted Dylan Cease because of something called the Z strikeout rate. And that's something that also popped up in your pitching busts article. Could you just tell me how how is that sort of how is that calculated and, and what does that have to do with uh, in terms of determining a pitcher's sort of expected uh, strikeout percentage versus their actual strikeout percentage. Well, in this case, for uh, strikeouts, home runs, and walks, uh, Zips actually tries to derive an expected rate from the underlying stats. In, in, in the strikeout rate, it comes down to a few things that, that do correlate well with future strikeouts. Uh, and the, the point of it is it's similar to X stats, but Z for zips i know very <laughs> but i don't actually you know abbreviate things right because the z and zip stands for zimborski which starts with an s so so this is like the best use of an initial that i've i've uh, the most competent use of an initial but in, in the case of strikeout rate zips looks at things such as the the contact rate you know the swing rate out of contact swinging strikes those plate discipline stats are actually really useful the the z strikeout measure uh the the, the r squared against actual strikeout rate is 0.82 which is a really good this is the r squared not the r so that means that 82 percent of the variance in in, in st- actual strikeout rate has been described by z strikeout rate uh and it's also actually more predictive in future years which is why zips integrates it now if a guy underperforms or overperforms that for a long period of time zips does take that into consideration but i i do find that you can you can find breakout guys frequently doing this kind of thing, and in, in Dylan Cease's case, there was a pretty big delta between the expected and the actual. Uh, the, the 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 biggest difference was, was Ryan Yarbrough, but it kind of felt like he was just going to be Ryan Yarbrough. Uh, so I so I thought you know the thing about Cease is he throws really really hard, and if you looked at Dylan Cease's stats without knowing his velocity and without you know any history you'd see you'd see like oh he 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 strikes out seven guys a game he must not throw very hard uh just you know the general bias but he he throws you know into the upper 90s he's all he's got that kind of native Valdi thing where he hasn't like turned him into strikeouts yet but Avaldi eventually did uh so i'm hopeful how do you feel about him or is he gonna is he going to have a breakout or are you going to tell me to cease and desist I will. I will not tell you that. I like this pick. I. I. I, I wanted you to to talk about uh, that that a little bit because I, I. I. really enjoy. I found that very interesting in terms of predicting who is who can take a step forward and and who is who is already missing bats or has has the ability to but just doesn't necessarily turn those into uh, actual strikeouts enough. So I. I do really like Dylan Cease. Watching him last year, he he just he sort of passes the eye test of of a guy who who you're watching and you're like, damn, this his stuff looks pretty good. It, it's weird that he's not doing better. So yeah, I liked. I agree with with Cease being on here. I really like to see Ryan Tapera, the uh, MVP vote receiver, Ryan Tapera, because his his swing and miss numbers last year were just out of control and. Yeah, I thought I I didn't have any qualms with with the pitcher list at all. Yeah, when I when I went with Ryan Tapera, I actually called up every cutter he threw in in, in 2021, and I actually initially had it in like a giant sizzle reel of every single cutter. Uh, but I thought that 
a you know a a ten minute video of just Ryan Tapera cutters would have gotten really annoying on the site, uh, and Meg would have probably said, "Dan, can you trim this down to like three? Uh, so so it, it it's fun watching it uh if you haven't read the article for people who haven't uh his his he uses his cutter like a slider in a way uh he throws it you know low and away like you do when you're trying to get jeff francor to go fishing but he does it with kind of you know it, it has cutter tight movement but it does have you know pretty good bite for a cutter i guess it's a slutter clider i don't know Neither of those sound good. One of them sounds pretty bad to say. Now, I mean, for every breakout happy pick, there's a bust candidate. The guys are going to be disappointing. And, and, you know, there's different kinds of disappointment. There's players who are disappointing relative to how they were in 2021 or players who I just don't think are major leaguers anymore. I think the last in that category, I put Justin Upton. It seems that the Angels have had a lot of money tied up in players that they will continue to play no matter how poorly they play. Between Upton and Pujols, it's, it feels like just the team, I don't want to say doesn't care, but they just seem just, I don't know, just separated from the whole winning games thing sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, when you look at how many players the Angels have had like that over the years, it, it becomes a little bit more clear how they've struggled to build an 81 team around Mike Trout because if you're giving if you're giving uh, 650 plate appearances to players like uh, Albert Pujols on the downswing of his career and Justin Upton when he isn't when he just clearly doesn't look like himself anymore he still he hit for a little bit of power last year but he's he's not useful at all in the outfield anymore He's not going to add any any value on on defense, and it, it really seems like the sort of twenty ish maybe home run power at this point is is probably probably all that he has left. Yeah, I was interested in several of the bust hitters you had on this list. Charlie Blackman is on here uh, after he hit. Didn't he hit like five hundred going into like the fourth week of August last year? He 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 did have that hot start, but I mean he he's he's still a good batting average guy, and of course Coors Field helps with that. But one of the reasons was he does not hit the ball hard at all. His exit velocity was like his average exit velocity was like eighty six in in twenty twenty. I mean that's absurd for a guy playing in Coors. Oh yeah, and I mean he's had you know coming off essentially averaging thirty home runs for for his entire prime. And that, that that kind of fascinates me. It makes me wonder if I think and you can make the argument that he probably gets more of an advantage from Coors Field and is more a creation of that environment than, say, Nolan Arenado, who is more. Who, well, first, Arenado has a lot of defensive value and his his home runs feel like they were more earned in a way. Maybe I'm just biased. Do you think that maybe he needs to shave the beard at this point? Maybe the beard is holding him back from proper exit velocity. I worry about the beard more uh, in his outfield defense. Maybe it creates more drag when he's running the baseballs, and that's why his defensive metrics are so are so poor. I wonder though, because you know, in every movie with people like going to war, like you know Braveheart or I guess Game of Thrones and everything, the guys with the beards seem to run the fastest, yelling into the the opposing army. So maybe beards actually make you a little faster. I don't know the physics behind that, but do you think that's possible? 
I mean, don't you have, like, more testosterone, maybe, if you have a, a big beard? Maybe that, maybe that leads you to be able to, to, to run faster? I don't know. I'm not a, is it a biologist that sorts those things out? I don't know. I don't do whatever science is behind figuring out uh, beards and sprint speed. I wonder. See, now I'm sitting here thinking of beards. Now, Kyle Lewis. Kyle Lewis is probably the player I got the most pushback against because he did overperform in, in 2020 compared to expectations. And is this a case of the stat man is mad that he overperformed and is taking it out on him? No, I think you have a legitimate gripe. I mean, he strike Kyle Lewis strikes out a lot. His contact rates are really, really alarming. Luis Robert, you mentioned, had, had similar ones, but, but but like you said, Robert at least adds a, a ton of value on defense. I think I think Luis can still be a, a pretty good defender, but he's not going to be a a Gold Glove level center fielder. Uh, I don't think the way that Robert is, but yeah, I I think I think contact the contact issues are concerning enough he he did he walked a decent bit last year which which helps but that's not really something he ever had much history of in the minors like I mean Kyle Lewis is I I don't know that I am as pessimistic about him going into this coming season because he is so young and he he's so tooled up that I think that he will be able to get back to what he was doing in the early part of 2020 and figure some of those things out. But yeah, the the contact issues there are are certainly reason for concern. I, I was interested in seeing Josh Bell on this on this list of busts, especially since he is the middle of the order bat that the Nationals went out and and added this winter. And, you know, that's a team that really, really needs a boost uh, in that part of the order, just making it a little bit deeper behind Trey Turner and Juan Soto, obviously. What what makes you what makes you a little bit skeptical about Josh Bell? Well, Josh Bell, he I mean, he made my bust list because, you know, on, on some level, I say who's overrating Josh Bell at this point. But then I saw the reaction from D.C. media when they acquired Josh Bell you know, there was a lot of excitement about, about you know, the, the big bat they've put into the lineup. And I just was like, no, not really. And, you know, when people have joy and happiness, it's, it's my natural inclination to, you know, take away that joy and happiness and make them sad. But in the case of Josh Bell, I mean, he literally has two months of being a star at the start of 2019. And then the rest, he's just kind of an averageish first baseman who is just really poor defensively at the position. He kind of needs to be a DH. I think he'd actually have more more value really as a DH, even if you apply an extra position-related penalty. I mean, it might be a, a bust just to DC people. I don't I don't know. The player that I was I really was torn about was Jose Abreu. Because I don't think he's actually going to be a poor player like like some of the players on this list. And he was the MVP in, in 2020, but it just feels like he's just going to he's not young. He hasn't really hit this well in a long time. I mean, he still he, he crushes the ball, but I mean, he also crushed the ball in 2019 and 2018 when he was not anywhere near as exciting. Do you think a brave can do it again? No, I I think your uh, your assessment of of 
him here was was pretty fair. It is tough with first baseman like this because first base slash DH guys because the the threshold that they have to clear to be star players on offense is just is just so much higher and that's the standard you're working with with guys like uh Abreu, Bell, uh Joey Votto's another player uh on your list who who fits this sort of demographic. Jose Abreu, yeah, he won the MVP last year, but he last year was was sort of a perfect season for somebody like Jose Abreu to win the MVP, right? Cuz he didn't even he didn't even lead the American League in war, right? That was Jose Ramirez. He went out and mashed for for 60 games and and I think you can last year was a was sort of created the perfect conditions for a a slugger who isn't adding anything defensively is a little bit one-dimensional in terms of being a big power threat but not really walking a whole lot never you know never having produced at at that height in the in the past several years and seeing which one of them would just get blistering hot for 60 games. You know, Abreu had had a 350 Babbitt last year. That's he he's run on the high end of that throughout his career, but he uh he had never hit for hit hit anything that high since since his rookie season. He also Abreu because of just the the how many times he was hitting with guys on in that White Sox order, he also racked up a ton of RBIs, and that sort of generates the discussion, at least you know on a local level, not not nearly as much as it once did, but it does you know generate and generate the idea that he is a he is a run producer, he is a wind producer for for that team. So I think yeah, last year was sort of the perfect time for somebody like Jose Abreu to to really maximize what he was able to do in one season and I don't see that happening again I, he's probably going to go back to being a, a two and a half three win player and honestly that's I think that that is completely fine for no more than the White Sox are, are paying him at the same time that some of their other young guys are are in their pre-arb stages in fairness to Abreu, I mean, he was third in the AL in war last year, so it wouldn't have been, I mean, it wasn't like if Dante Bichette had won that year. Right. Oh, Dante Bichette. We used to actually fight with his dad on used that because stat heads were mean about Dante Bichette, so his dad would come in onto Usenet and just kind of blast us all, which was fun. Good memories of the early internet era. <laughs> early jerkiness. I'm daily disappointed that I missed that. Yeah, it was it was pretty entertaining because Tracy Ringlesby wrote a lot of of very excited pieces about Dante Bichette back back in that time. And Grant Brisby uh, of The Athletic and and, and formerly of SB Nation, he was around on Newsnet at that time, too. And he pointed out that any any article that people write about Bichette, you could replace RBIs with pancakes in in the text and it would make just as much sense because they'd always write about Bichette about how he'd like to drive like he was hungry for RBIs and he'd, <laughs> he'd smell the RBIs so all these articles about Bichette you could replace RBIs with pancakes and say he smells the pancakes he just wants to get those pancakes and uh Dante Bichette's dad was was not pleased that we were talking about his son eating pancakes 
that was before just the general rule of the internet was just just never google your loved ones and to never never seek out any comment sections anywhere people people were just people were roaming freely and and thought that it was going to go much better for them if they looked up what people what strangers on, on the internet were saying about their children uh yeah so so i i'm happy that that hasn't come back and haunted me like someone says oh you 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 wrote 20 years ago that he eats just sits there eating pancakes. Now I'm kind of getting hungry because I haven't had lunch yet. So rather than talk about pancakes, we can talk about pictures. Now, which pictures will be pancaked by the 2021 season? See, there there was always a segue planned in there. There you go. I swear. There you go. It all connects. The Patrick Corbin segment was was really interesting. It's nice to see the Nationals aware of some of the issues facing their starters and, and actively actively trying to work with them. Seeing two Nationals pitchers are on this list is a little bit concerning for that team, especially since one of their issues, one of their many issues last year was just how, how shallow their pitching staff became. Corey Kluber is a really interesting name on here because yeah, the the concern isn't really isn't really for his performance, but just whether he's actually going to be around, stick around enough to make that performance impactful. You know, Jordan Montgomery's on your on your breakout list. Even he carries a little bit of that injury risk as well. I I share your skepticism about whether about what what Corey Kluber is actually going to be able to offer the Yankees in twenty twenty one. Yeah, I think I separate Kluber from Montgomery because it, it it feels like the Yankees are just counting more on Kluber than Montgomery. It's it feels like whatever they get from Montgomery because they've they've had him and he's been injured is is kind of kind of like gravy. Uh, but they're they're paying Kluber like they really have expectations for him, and I think that's that's kind of the risk for a team like the Yankees. I kind of would have felt better about him joining like a team like the Royals. Uh, I think that would have been a better environment for a team because they don't actually need him to, you know, get them to the playoffs. And, you know, maybe if it works out that you trade him in, in, in July and he goes to a contender and mows down pitchers in the playoffs and looks like one of the best transactions of the year. But the Yankees, they have a lot of arms that are kind of risky. We, If you look at our depth charts, the Yankees rank very highly in, in starting pitching. Uh, they rank fourth right now uh on our depth charts and so i mean it's a good group but if you look at the names on the list you can see a lot going wrong i mean you start with garrett cole but then you know you have kluber and montgomery and and garcia and severino and 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 so on and you say you know if they flip you know tails a few times on these guys it could get ugly pretty quickly yeah i mean the uh even even their younger more prospected guys like uh, Clark Schmidt are are coming in with that that you could you know guys who are who are nor- who would normally be in a position where you would you would look at them and and say oh well if something goes wrong at the major league level at least they have the, that guy in the high minors uh, even those guys have injury concerns so yeah you know it is a it is an odd rotation in that if every if they get. 900 innings out of their five best guys then look out they're going to be really scary but if they you know you could also see a, a situation where they're not getting even half that and and that's that that's where things could get really ugly for them 
speaking of, you know, I, I, I know you mentioned the, uh, the, the playoffs earlier. I think that the postseason last year was, was the country's first look at what Dustin May looks like outside of the dazzling pitching gifts that they usually see the morning after he starts a game at 11.30 p.m. on the East Coast. And I, I think if, if he hadn't thrown as much in the postseason, people would be a little bit more disbelieving of his spot on this bus list. But now that we've all we've all gotten more more exposure to him, We've all seen how things can go awry for him, despite the uh, the crazy stuff that he has. Yeah, and, and well, the crazy hair too, because he had to prepare people, uh, saying this is not a Fraggle Rock reboot. This is Dustin May, and he just has wild red hair, crazy red <laughs> hair. He's very, very gingery. Uh, so he has to be careful in the sun. I assume. Is there anyone who would you add to these busts? Either pitcher or hitter, just someone that you're just down on. Watching watching Nick Castellanos bat last year for the Reds was a little bit disappointing. Uh, he had always been a pretty high contact guy, you know, had a lot of gap to gap doubles power, and he just he he wasn't really that guy anymore. His swing had a lot more loft. It seemed like uh, he was he was able to hit a few more homers but his strikeout rate just went really high and he had really bad luck on balls in play I mean he went from being a 330-ish hitter Babbitt wise for his career to down around 250 so I'm a little bit skeptical on on Nick Castellanos the thing is the Reds had I, I wrote about them a little while ago but the Reds has had this ridiculous batting average on balls in play it's like when the roadrunner and like the, when Wally Coyote's chasing the roadrunner and and he runs over the edge, and then he he get they give him a book about gravity, and then he falls down. The Reds, it's like they didn't know that batting average in balls in play regresses towards the mean because they had a two forty five as a team, which is just unreal. Because if you look at at pitchers throughout history as batters, they tend to have a batting average in balls in play somewhere between depending on the year, like two fifteen and two thirty five. So the Reds' offense. With with all these sluggers that are legitimate major league players, the, the balls they hit were only slightly more likely to become an actual hit than the ones that pictures hit. Yeah, I mean, and that's I mean, if you're looking at uh, you know as far as team wide breakout picks for for offense go, that makes them a pretty prime example of a team that's probably going to look a little bit better than it than they did last year even if they did completely ignore the shortstop spot but yeah i'm overall in full support of the busts and breakouts on here i know that doesn't make for the most uh, stimulating podcast chatter but i i am uh one one of the uh one of the people here has a fancy computer model that can <laughs> that, that he can uh plug things into and get wisdom from and i i am just a commoner who who looks at baseball savant data and goes "Ooh, look at that look at that that one that number's bolded bolded in red that's exciting but but see if you agree uh i can also blame you too for the ones that are wrong because as is my tradition i blame carson sestuli for everything 
even though he he doesn't work for us anymore, I I still blame him because uh, it's it's probably Carson's fault mostly. <laughs> but I I'll blame you a little too. That is fine with me. I welcome that. Well, anyway, we are out of time. We have gone on very long about our busts and breakouts. For Tony Wolf, I thank you all for joining us. And for Fangraphs, I'm Dan Zimborski. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Remember to head over to the Fangraphs.com store for our latest merch. Also, if you haven't yet, check out our Twitch page at twitch.tv slash fangraphslive. There you can view all of our previous broadcasts and programming at any time. We will be back next week with another podcast. Talk to you then.